Hello, everyone. You're listening to American Indian Airwaves. For Marcus Lopez, I'm your host, Larry Smith. On today's program, a one-hour in-depth conversation on the growing need for Indigenous wellness services for the larger urban Indigenous communities in Los Angeles County, California. We'll speak with the CEO and therapist of one of the major programs providing such services during the COVID-19 pandemic. All that and more here on American Indian Airways. You can hear when the moon shines bright, the lone in the black of the night. You can hear, you can hear the whisper in the valley. Mm-hmm. And you know when come a candy blows to the bar who drum, As we encroach upon three years of the COVID-19 pandemic, Native American families, individuals, children, communities, and nations continue to be heavily impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic with some of the highest rates from infection to mortalities. On today's program, we look at indigenous wellness, the rise of services during the COVID-19 pandemic, and the complications in administering those services, as well as the lack of services available to the larger urban indigenous communities. Today, we focus on the Los Angeles County urban Native American populations and what indigenous wellness has looked like over the past three years. I have the honor and pleasure in speaking with two individuals, Monique Castro from the Diné Nation. She is CEO and clinical director of the Indigenous Circle of Wellness located in Commerce, California, as well as Denise Copeland, who's a therapist and wellness provider for the Indigenous Circle of Wellness. I start today's interview with Monique Castro asking for an update on Indigenous wellness as we encroach the three-year mark of the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, well, there's been a lot of changes since our first interview. I think it was definitely at the, what felt like the start or I guess at that point we didn't know what where we were at in this pandemic and how much longer it was going to last and what to expect. Um, but there's been a lot of changes and, and things that I think community has navigated through throughout these past several years. You know, I think there's always been a huge need for mental health and wellness support within the community, especially in an urban setting. And we've seen a huge increase of folks reaching out for services just shortly after the, the start of the pandemic. So much so that the practice, um, Indigenous Circle of Wellness, grew by, it, it, we pretty much tripled in size uh, as far as our team. And so, therefore, we also, like, kind of tripled or quadrupled in the amount of services we started to offer. 
So at the start of the pandemic, there was a team of myself and two other therapists that were both part-time. We now have a team of 10 people, 10 employees within the practice, which four are wellness providers, or we refer to them as wellness providers, but they're therapists, so they're mental health providers. And we also have a, um, like an operations team just to meet the need, uh, the need, the constant needs, right? So we have uh, we continue to provide individual, individual, couple, family, and group counseling. One of the shifts we also needed to make to be able to offer more services to community because there was, again, such a high need is we started offering workshops, trainings, and, um, and more group support because we're able to have a larger reach. Um, and, and also to folks who might not necessarily want to receive individual services just yet, but still need the community support. Because here in Los Angeles, we rely a lot on the community events and gatherings that we have hosted for connection and that we haven't had that, or it looks very different now. Everything went virtual. So we started offering a lot more community events virtually. So that's been a huge change. One of the things that actually me and Denise were talking about before jumping onto the call was we were before about a 98% in-person practice. So folks would come to our office and seek services from us. We are now to this date, and I am, imagine moving forward, we're about, a, about 97%, 98% virtual practice wow. now, which is completely opposite, you know. Um, <laughs> it, it's, it's great, and yeah. also, I mean, it's great that we're able to offer virtual services, but it's it's a huge it's a huge change from what we had in prior to the pandemic starting. Well, let let me ask uh, both of you: with such a, a spike in in demand for Indigenous wellness, and so much of the work being done virtually. Have there been any barriers or obstacles in trying to provide Indigenous wellness to community members in the virtual as opposed to physical spaces? Yeah, I definitely want to invite Denise in to to answer um, from her experience of some of those challenges, and I can also share as well. You know, a lot. A lot of the main challenges I think that I noticed, uh, I mean, just to start off with, is just people's comfort level. Sure. Um, When I started with the practice, we were already, we were probably already about six months into the pandemic, but I Mm -hmm. I definitely, you know, we had a lot of moments where people thought, this was it, it's going to be done now, and rates would get back lower, and I I know I had a lot of people um, who weren't necessarily comfortable with telehealth and then things would happen like in LA County for example last well two two winters ago right the rates went up really high the rates spiked significantly again so a lot of that was comfort level um, with the technology or or just feeling uh, that it feels different than that in-person connection Mm -hmm. so a lot of it is just kind of creating the space to talk through that with clients like we addressed what the hesitation was we had a timeline if we were going to come back to meet in person, having a timeline of what that would look like, and obviously always give it, given that choice of when it was possible. Like, for example, when the rates were so high, even myself as a provider, I, I didn't feel it was safe for me to have in-person sessions, given what we knew at the time. Um, so just this, you know, giving clients an option of continuing to meet and switching to virtual or providing some referrals. 
Uh, once people start using it, I've noticed it can almost even feel like an in-person session. So a lot of it is just talking through that initial discomfort. I do a lot of work with kids. You know, initially some of the challenges or barriers, especially if at that time or with some of the clients I work with, they're spending a lot of time on, on Zoom for school or things like that. It's really being creative with how to kind of stay engaged. So doing some planning together um, in terms of if um, parents could make sure that we have art supplies available. Not all therapy, you know, a lot of therapy is not all talking. Right. It can be different activities we're doing together or drawing or painting. So even kind of getting comfortable with that over a video session, you know, asking, you know, clients to show me their work if, um, and what it means to them if they're feeling comfortable with that. And myself as a provider, so I'm, I'm bilingual, I also speak Spanish. One of the main barriers I noticed with some of my clients, if they were Spanish speaking only, would be even, and they weren't familiar with the technology, is even kind of walking them through getting connected. Mm. Especially earlier on in the pandemic, you know, guides we might have had to do that weren't necessarily available in their spoken language. So they weren't available in Spanish, so we'd have to kind of get creative for how, how we're going to get connected to each other. So those are the, the main ones that I can think of right now in terms of the barriers. And, and it's gotten a lot better over time, but the other one sometimes was just connection issues, especially yeah. when a lot of kids were still in virtual learning. You know, our my midday sessions, it wasn't unusual for the connection not to happen or the video call to get dropped just at times where there was heavy internet mm-hmm. use going on. In addition to that, um, the software programs being monolingual, not being bilingual or trilingual, uh, you mentioned internet connectivity issues, but what about uh, technology issues, right? Just um, having virtual sessions, wellness sessions online and ensuring that clients have the technology, the resources, the strong internet connectivity being able to navigate the software for telemedicine purposes. And so any complications with the digital devices in addition to everything else, and then how does that compound or does it compound the comfort level that's needed to conduct Indigenous wellness virtually as opposed to physically? Yeah, I I can chime in on that. Um, One of the things that... so. As, as Denise mentioned, there's the, the internet connectivity issue that would happen, especially during different times of the day. So one of the things that I would personally do with my clients is talk about, we may need to jump on a phone call, right, if the yeah. internet connection mm-hmm. drops. And often, I mean, there was a lot of times where that ha- would happen. And it can get really frustrating, you know, just as a provider, like validating that experience. So it's frustrating for me as well. Sometimes you might be in like in that really deep, like moment with a client and then it logs you off and you're like no like this like we like this can totally shift um where we were in the session but you know we had to like adapt to that and, and make those those quick changes and sometimes most of the time it's possible we were able to make those um shifts and it still happens today because as i mentioned we are still very much virtual but i think at this point it's like okay we're just making the adjustments that are needed. So one of the backups is always a phone call. So we do talk to our clients about yeah. like, we can move on to a phone call okay. as another option. The other thing that I noticed that was happening is there was constant system upgrades through the different platforms. So we use a, a HIPAA compliant secure platform 
And even with that, there was, I think, one day where, it was a few times that it happened, where their entire, like, platform went, like, just offline. Mm-hmm. So it just wasn't working. Like, appointments weren't being noted. Like, it's like it just, just wasn't working at all. So, um, yeah, we had to, you know, call clients, get on the phone with them, explain to them what was happening, even though I, at that time, didn't even know what was going on. We got the notifications afterwards. So these things happen you know, communicate with folks, but I, I will say it is frustrating and it can create more of a challenge in the session than, than obviously beneficial. Um, and then we only have about 15 minutes per session, right? So mm. if you're 10 minutes early on in the session or mid-session is trying to log back in and figure out how to get reconnected, it's, it, it's unfortunate because that's time that is not being used for their, for their wellness and probably more frustrating than anything. So yeah. it's, I feel like it's happened less and less now, (laughs) but it still happens. Go ahead. Yeah, I didn't want to interrupt you, Monique. I was going to say, I will say, I feel like it does, it's it's gotten a lot better. I think people Mm -hmm. have adapted Mm -hmm. and are are a lot more comfortable with it. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I will say also, just in terms of the platform we use, I think it's pretty user-friendly. And I I think Mm -hmm. that that has helped in terms of there's automatic reminders, people get a secure link to their email so that's been really helpful. And a lot of it in terms of, I personally, um, I'm not sure how much it came up with the practice, but for the most part, clients had a device that was able to use the platform, whether it be a tablet or their cell phone or a laptop or a desktop computer they could use. I'm, I'm curious in, in listening to the both of you, um, it still sounds like, and correct me if I'm wrong, despite the growth of Indigenous Circle of Wellness and the number of folks that are now employed compared to Monique the last time you and I uh, spoke here on the show, that uh, and just hearing you, Denise and, and Monique, talk about the time constraints, right, in meeting with community members, yeah. and that if there are, you know, digital or software platform issues, it takes away from what limited quality time is available to community members. So that calls yeah. into question, right, um, lack of resources. And so I was wondering maybe um, if both of you can share about, um, you know, some of the lack of resources, whether it be from Native therapists, um, needing, uh, you know, more people to provide the kind of services uh, for Indigenous wellness to the larger urban Indigenous communities? And then what other um, types of lack of resources are you seeing um, despite the growth Mm -hmm. of the program and the demand, right, the greater demand by the community uh, now that we're almost three years out into the COVID-19 pandemic? And you're listening to American Indian Airwaves. We're speaking with Monique Castro, CEO and Clinical Director of Indigenous Circle of Wellness, and Denise Copeland, who's a therapist and wellness provider for Indigenous Circle of Wellness. We're speaking on the greater need to provide more resources for Indigenous wellness in the larger urban Indigenous Los Angeles County area. And we want to remind listeners that KPFK is in its fun drive mode, and it is you, the listeners, that we rely on for your financial support. If you appreciate the voices that we bring here to all of you, 
on American Indian Airwaves and KPFK, please show your support by visiting the kpfk.org website and clicking on the pledge widget and make a donation in a dollar amount of your choice. You can also become a KPFK Sustainer Circle member or you can call 818-985-5735, 818-985-KPFK. And now back to the interview. Yeah, there's definitely several um, barriers and challenges that we're, we're experiencing. I can speak of um, even that at, at this point for us is um, even though we have grown a lot, we to meet the need that we have right now, mm-hmm. I would probably need to hire double the staff that we have. Wow. <laughs> and But we also can't necessarily have that level of growth right now either. Um, there's various reasons for for that, right? There's like infrastructure. We need we would need more clinical supervisors. We would need, I would need like a whole new ma- like a, a a larger management team, right? Right. But that's definitely something that I think if we're looking at our current wait list and the and the influx of requests for our services, we would need like a whole new department. To be honest with you, we have a multi-month wait list right now that we have to close. because we just couldn't even respond to the requests that were coming in. And we want to make sure that we're being able to respond to those initial folks that who have honestly been on the wait list now, I think, um, as far back as early November. So there's a huge need for services. What we are finding is that there's there's a few barriers that folks are experiencing. One is that in Los Angeles County, we have very few mental health providers who work with native population mm. right right we have there are there's one nonprofit organization which you may be familiar with united american indian involvement mm-hmm. who provide mental health services at lower no cost so but there's uh, specific qualifications to receive those services then we have the county department which is through department of mental health which is american indian counseling center they also have very specific requirements our practice is one of very few practices in Los Angeles County that has an indigenous native centered focus. So there's not a lot of other practices to refer to. And even those practices, I know a few, when I asked their, um, like their clinical supervisors there and, and their team, they're also um, at capacity. Wow. So I will say overall community is reaching for the support. There's just not enough providers to provide the support right now and then specifically within our practice because we are a a private practice we are most we are primarily private pay private practice so that also makes it challenging for folks who might be wanting to use their insurance or use um or might need free services we are unable to to necessarily meet all the needs right of community with the financial um maybe financial restrictions that they may have, we're constantly thinking and seeking different resources and partnerships to offer lower fee services. But that's also one of the challenges that we have is that we don't have, we can't necessarily offer free services. And and folks also are in need of that, of free services. And I I would imagine from the last time I, I had checked in with folks at the other two nonprofit or with the county department as well as the nonprofit, I mean, they have a pretty back uh, backlog waitlist as well. Wow. Go and ahead. I, 
Yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, I, I would second that. I think a lot of it, the biggest lack of resource or needed resource is just the providers. And right. and there's the technology has improved a lot. There's been some hiccups, if yeah. anything, or in my own experience as a provider, it's actually increasing access to services. So there can be like that session that's frustrating or that first session getting clients set up, but especially with clients who don't have a provider near them potentially that they could drive through or attend on a regular basis or they don't have um, child care, their schedules wouldn't work out. I would just want to stretch that point. I do think that the technology or being able to do telehealth has actually um, in potentially increased access for some people who may not have providers locally available to them. So I, I just want to second what Monique said. It's, um, I think the biggest resource we need is more providers. In listening to the both of you and in, in talking about the complications with insurance, of course, that brings up, um, you know, the question or the role of, say, uh, Indian Health Services or the CDC's uh, Tribal Practices for Wellness in Indian Country programs. And, and what role does IHS play or and or the CDC's program? Do they have any role in constraining or limiting, limiting um, Indigenous Wellness of Circles operations and their ability to provide wellness to community members? So as far as the funding like through IHS or what they're able to provide as well as like the programs to CDC, I know there's a lot of funding out there for different programming. Right. One of the things that we, um, and, and I'll be honest with you, I'm not, too sh- I'm not exactly sure like what is offered right now through IHS. I know, mm-hmm. for example, United American Indian Involvement has an IHS clinic right. um, with, housed within their organization. And they're, from my understanding, most of their focus has been on vaccinations. Right, mm-hmm. getting folks vaccinated and resources right. around that. Um, as far as other funding sources, what I have seen overall in Indian country is a huge, wonderful influx of wellness support throughout, mm-hmm. right? So there's a lot of workshops, wellness workshops, healing, you know, opportunities, community spaces, virtual community spaces throughout the country, throughout Indian country, which is phenomenal. And I see different organizations who are taking on that are hosting like these different wellness gatherings virtually for either their local community or, or you know, for all folks um, nationwide, which is great. What I do think is still lacking is um, mental health providers, so licensed mental health providers who are providing direct services. So, and and that's what we're seeing here in LA County, and honestly throughout the state of California as well. But I'm sure nationally, right? Actually, right. that is true. It is national because we get so many folks from different states who are calling our practice mm. for services. Wow. Can I get services at your practice? And unfortunately, all of our providers are only licensed within the state of California. Oh. So that's one of another barrier, right? Right. Um, talking about barriers is when someone is licensed, they're licensed in the state and in, in, um, they're only licensed for the state. Right. We can be licensed in multiple states, but we have to actually acquire the license in various states. It's not a national license. So folks are are realizing or I don't say realizing, but folks are being engaged in different wellness um, activities. And they're like, you know what? I need a therapist. And they seek it. And then there's not enough (laughs) providers. And that is really challenging. So. 
I know on, on our end, as far as Indigenous Circles Honest, a lot of the programming that we have also done has been through funding that other organizations have received from, I'm not sure if it's the CDC in particular, or if it's what funding sources, but they have received funding because they're nonprofits, and then they'll contract us to provide services or wellness spaces for their community members. So we haven't received any direct funding because we're not a nonprofit, but we have been contracted by many nonprofits to provide various wellness support. When I'm listening to the both of you, and I know we've talked about this before, that with indigenous peoples being place-based peoples and and the fact that COVID, uh, the COVID pandemic has really created you know, barriers and, and uh, prohibited people, whether it be economically, spatially, uh, for whatever reason, from maintaining cultural ties and connections uh, to their nations and communities and to the land and, and oceans where, you know, that define who people are. And, and so that greater disconnection along with this, you know, time of mourning from so many uh, relatives and community members moving on or uh, from COVID, you know, how does that complicate and elevate the demand for indigenous wellness and for healing uh, three years into the COVID-19 pandemic? Yeah, it's, asking that question just reminds me of my, you know, how long it's been that I've been able to visit back home with my family on the Navajo Nation, right? Right. And that how hard that has been for me to not be able to be with my family, to see them, to be in space with them. And um, I'm not exactly sure when is, when is the best time to make that visit because things are still, you know, I don't ever want to put my family at risk, um, especially back home. Right. And it, and you have mentioned grief, and so there's a lot of grief. There's grief from those, the disconnections that folks are experiencing. It's the folks who have passed on that we have not maybe have even even the opportunity to uh, mourn properly. There's so many different experiences and stories that are very can be very layered. I know within, even within my own family there are several folks who have passed. I never got to attend their services, be with family, to be of comfort to them. And it it's really, really difficult. So I don't like, I just know that a lot of folks right now have been navigating it the best way that they can mm-hmm. um, with very limited support. And this is where I think we're going to experience more challenges especially around depression and grief um that might we're going to see in the upcoming months and years because as right now Mm -hmm. things are really i feel very like we are so moving trying to move through this that we haven't necessarily had the opportunity to be like wow i didn't get to be there i didn't get to attend that ceremony i didn't I, we, this didn't happen, and that's going to start coming up. So this grief that I feel like is layering is um, it. We're going to ha- we're going to be faced more with it, right, in right. the coming um, in the coming time. Right. So, which is concerning in the sense that, like, I hope and pray that we have more 
resources, both at our own practice and nationally, um, for for this, mm-hmm. um, so that folks are receiving the support that they need. But um, I mean, if you if you speak to any family member, like there's so many things that have like they haven't been able to participate in. It's right. it, like in having these conversations with community members and different spaces, like there's a lot of tears. There's a lot of really just holding those space for one another because everyone resonates in various ways of how this has impacted them. From visiting family to participating in cultural practices, right? Right. right. So I don't know if it answers the question, but it's an acknowledgement of like, this is really, it's heavy. And that concludes part one of our two-part interview here on American Indian Airwaves. We're speaking with Monique Castro, CEO and Clinical Director of the Indigenous Circle of Wellness, and Denise Copeland, who's a therapist and wellness provider with the Indigenous Circle of Wellness. We're speaking on Indigenous healing, wellness, and the complications of the lack of resources for Indigenous peoples throughout the urban Los Angeles County, California area. We'll resume with part two of the interview in just a moment. So I just want to remind listeners that uh, KPFK is uh, presently in its fun drive and it is listeners like you that help keep the station going. And we want to encourage KPFK listeners out there and the internet podcast world throughout Southern California, wherever it is that you may be, that if you appreciate the work that we do here on American Indian Airwaves and uplifting indigenous voices, marginalized voices, and bringing to you content that you can't get out there in the mass media landscape to please support uh, American Indian Airwaves in Pacifica's KPFK. And there are several ways to do that. You can visit the kpfk.org website, click on the pledge icon and select a premium item of interest, or you can become a KPFK Sustainer Circle member by making monthly dollar denominations of your choice, or you can call 818 985 5735-818-985-KPFK to make your pledge there. Marcus? Larry, I think it's so important that we speak to our listeners about this is, if you support the American Indian Airways, then donate to KPFK. Give those uh, items or premiums a look at. If you not only appreciate, but understand that the American Indian Airways is the only radio program that reflect indigenous struggles here in Southern California and that we have much work to do. By your pledge, it helps us as well as KPFK, the station, in order to operate and to counteract the corporate media and the people that are behind it and the organizations and the financial structures behind it in order to bring truth to light, bring that what you hear in American Indian Airways, this hour we, we're speaking with individuals that talk about the conditions of indigenous people within the Los Angeles area. And we constantly do that about give voices to the front lines of indigenous struggle hemispherically. So that's what American Indian Airways, and that's where your pledge helps us to bring the frontline fighters to the forefront. Like our recent series, A Sacred Stage, talks about the playwrights. And within that, we have lots of other series that we've done regarding COVID 
as well as what are Native people doing today that's so crucial that your commercial radio programs don't even do. So we reach out our hand, reaching out our relatives out there, and also all the non-Native people out there reach out and saying that help us, help us keep the program, keep KPFK alive, and all of us doing that will benefit from get a better idea where we have to go as, as not only as indigenous peoples, but also with the rest of our allies out there in the world. And we want to remind listeners, you can visit the kpfk.org website, click on the pledge widget. You can become a monthly Sustainer Circle member by agreeing to make monthly donations in a dollar denomination of your choice. Or you can pick from over a couple dozen different premium items that, that may be of interest and each premium item is a different dollar amount. But again, we want to encourage listeners, visit the kpfk.org website or call 818-985-5735, 818-985-KPFK. Support American Indian Airwaves, support KPFK, and help us continue to provide this invaluable, um, immeasurable public service to all of you, the listeners. And in the second half of today's program here on American Indian Airwaves, we continue with the second part of our interview on indigenous wellness and healing during the COVID-19 pandemic for the larger urban Los Angeles County, California indigenous communities. We're speaking with Monique Castro from the Diné Nation. She is CEO and clinical director of the Indigenous Circle of Wellness located in Commerce, California, and Denise Copeland, who's a therapist and wellness provider also for the Indigenous Circle of Wellness. And now part two of our two-part interview on Indigenous wellness during the COVID-19 pandemic for the larger urban Los Angeles County, California, Indigenous communities. You know, we're talking about being um, those obstacles of uh, maintaining or kindling those relations, you know, with community members uh, back home, right, where we come from and so many people urban indigenous people you know they live in the city now and and they call this home but even the larger urban indigenous um, community right there's all these um, you know cultural events and gatherings that occurred pre-covid and so obviously with covid mm-hmm. a lot of things have been canceled or you, you know if there are gatherings they're they're small right they're se- selective if you will in, in in order to ensure the, the health and protection, you know, of elders or community members, maybe with pre-existing yeah. health conditions. So, you know, I would imagine the fact that as a larger urban indigenous community, that kind of grieving, that kind of trauma, that kind of depression that you're talking about is compounded and amplified. And do you see that as, as well now that we're almost three years into COVID-19 pandemic? Yeah, and I'll definitely um, want to hear from Denise. Yeah, yeah. I would say absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, as we're working with our clients individually and, and in different group spaces, it really impacted them. I mean, sometimes this is like, you know, can be several, if not the entire kind of 
span of their their wellness support and therapy sessions is like how do what are the ways that they can reconnect even in very small ways because it's it's such an an adjustment um and what can we do with what we're able to with the very limited access right so mm. yeah I'll, I'll go ahead and allow um yeah. to chime in right there go ahead denise yeah i i think even as you're you know, this idea of grief or this topic of grief, right? we're, we're talking about grieving um, people who have passed on, but they're, you know, kind of compounded in that is the grief of, like, that lost connection or the experiences that people weren't. As, as Monique was talking, that I was kind of reflecting on that is these experiences that people have lost together, right? So um, I'm definitely seeing, you know, working with people, um, I tend to work with um Children and parents, right? So even that, for a lot of parents, was a huge loss initially in terms of the community support coming from parenting. Or with um, a lot of expectant parents or new parents, it's, again, mourning potentially people. They didn't have a chance to say goodbye or, um, you know, welcoming a new child. We might have had more family members around, visiting, providing that support, and it's showing up in very different ways now, right? There's right. these considerations about, um, I would say the biggest challenge, I think, that we're all trying to wrap our head around, you know, myself included, is what is safe to do and what's not safe to do. Right, right. So it's this acknowledgement of um, there's this need for connection and that acknowledging that that is a need, that, that is part of health, but also then how do we balance that out with, um, you know, the physical safety in these spaces. Right. So I I don't have like a very clear conclusion on that, but that's a struggle I see for a lot of people. It's wanting to protect other people in their community and be responsible and be safe while still also acknowledging we do also need these connections. We do also need to be able to see each other and really finding a point at which like what's the balance that feels good for them where they're still feeling that they're being responsible for their fellow community members and being safe while still acknowledging that we, we also do need to have some connections and be around each other. And is this, it's almost, um, I guess the best way I would put it is, is taking some calculated risk to maintain some sense of normalcy mm-hmm. or to be able to still foster some of those connections, knowing that there's not a guarantee that this is going to be safe. Or, um, and we all experienced this in LA County, knowing that even with, um, when vaccinations first came out, it was like, well, nobody has to wear, if you've been vaccinated, you don't have to wear the mask. And then it was suddenly like, oh, actually, we, you do have to wear the mask. So mm-hmm. it's it's trying to make sense of all this information while still putting that in a context of how do we how do we still foster these relationships? How do we still keep these connections in place? Denise, when I'm listening to you, and, and I know you work a lot with um, children and, and the parents out in the community and and the fact that um, been in isolation uh, for so long now and so for kids uh, a lot of their lives uh, their schooling and whatnot has been navigated um, and mediated virtually if you will through digital devices online mm-hmm. and, and with younger kids um, you know uh, the that idea of community and large families and extended families 
are so important to child development just in general, but also important culturally for Indigenous youth. And and I was just curious, you know, in the work that you're doing, uh, are we seeing um, any emerging patterns with the with the youth and in terms of how that might adversely affect their child development? But also, um, you know, the cultural practices that are indicative or, or typical of extended large families and, and community members that people would have normally have access to, right, in physical spaces and physical gatherings. So are we seeing any kind of patterns emerging with um, uh, younger indigenous children in terms of child development? And, um, and if so, uh, what are the implications of that? You know, right off the bat, I would say no, but only because I'm one therapist with a very limited caseload. There's particular <laughs> trends I might be seeing with my clients, right, that are right. not there with everybody. But like the barriers that I'm seeing is definitely like things you pointed out is there was potentially these large family gatherings or places where people connected, right? And some of this culture mm-hmm. is being transmitted. There's things that are being shared that potentially some kids may not have then had, right? And, and not being used to that, not um, especially depending on the age of the kids, like the younger they are, what those connections look like. And I mean, this is coming from my role as a therapist, but also my role as a parent. You know, sure. even uh, in my own life, I, I definitely was very cautious in the first part of, um, as we're talking about grief, very cautious in the first part of the pandemic, but, you know, getting to a certain point of realizing, wow, there's been almost a full year of lost contact, right? There's only so much you can do over a phone call or, you know, waving at each other from the front, from the front lawn, right? Almost a year of lost contact. And my, my kids are younger, but mm-hmm. even realizing that's a pretty significant time, right, to not have seen grandparents, right. to not have seen aunts or uncles. Um, and I, I will say there are these, if you're talking about trends, I mean, I think there's definitely potential there for... I guess the best way I could put it, potential for memories to not have been made mm. or connections to have been missed. Okay. In terms of a broader trend, I think it's very individual to what that looks like for the family. Mm-hmm. A lot of what I've noticed families struggling with or parents struggling with, it's really what those boundaries look like, right? Trying to foster those connections. But even if we are willing to do some in-person things, there might be different opinions about what's considered safe and what's not safe. So, and that, that definitely comes with this um, effect of kind of pressure on the parents to, you know, set firmer boundaries with families or kind of try to negotiate the safety of those connections. In terms of child development, I think... We haven't had something like this happen, and we don't really know right. a lot of it. And But one thing we do know about not just kids, but with any of us, we can go through really challenging, difficult circumstances. Um, what's most important, I think, from a mental health or a clinical standpoint, emotional health, is once we've gone through that circumstance or as we're going through it, what are the emotional supports or connections that we have, right? Right. Um, I could go through that challenging experience. I know a lot of kids had a really hard time adjusting to virtual learning. Absolutely. And I, I think even as a practice, I did a couple workshops on it and we had a parenting group. But I, even when I was putting that workshop together for like parenting during the pandemic for parents, it was that acknowledgement that it wasn't just when kids stayed home. And I, I hope this is addressing the question, but yeah. when, when kids stayed home, it wasn't, it wasn't just, oh, how do we best get them to learn 
over the screen, which I know I, I think a lot of schools and teachers put a lot of work into, but they were also really losing their routines, right? Mm. Especially with young kids, like this idea of, well, this happened to us as adults too, but even that walk to school or the drive to school, right? right. Those are all things we need to kind of get into this zone um, to be able to learn. They were also losing the the social contact and reinforcement that they were getting from teachers. That was something that I heard a lot of parents struggle with, and I even struggled with it myself as a parent, is, yeah, they could be getting those lessons and these packets from school, but there's a lot of social learning that's happening from their peers and all the adult staff around them at the school. And a lot of the weight on them that then kind of went on to these families who were also already dealing with a lot of stress themselves. And I don't, I don't have a clear answer about what the long-term consequences for that would be, I think everybody, you know, a lot of children's mental health providers as we're all looking to see what that is. Right. I do think, though, within the mental health community, there's been an acknowledgement of the fact that that was going on and efforts to kind of address it. And where we even start off on addressing those efforts, and I think that's where a lot of the resources, if we want to support kids or young kids, we have to make sure that family system is supported. So even kind of going back to some of your earlier questions, it's like, does this family have the resources they need in their day-to-day life in order to be emotionally present for that child? And that's what ends up counting. Do, do those adults have enough of the resources they need to be emotionally present for that child? And you're listening to American Indian Airwaves. We're speaking with Monique Castro, CEO and Clinical Director of Indigenous Circle of Wellness, and Denise Copeland, who's a therapist and wellness provider for Indigenous Circle of Wellness. We're speaking on the greater need to provide more resources for Indigenous wellness in the larger urban Indigenous Los Angeles County area. And we want to remind listeners that KPFK is in its fun drive mode, and it is you, the listeners, that we rely on for your financial support. If you appreciate the voices that we bring here to all of you on American Indian Airwaves and KPFK, please show your support by visiting the kpfk.org website and clicking on the pledge widget and make a donation in a dollar amount of your choice. You can also become a KPFK Sustainer Circle member or you can call 818-985-5735, 818-985-KPFK. And now back to the interview. I was wondering what about single Native parents with Indigenous children and and how, how does being a single parent with a child uh, complicate things in terms of Indigenous wellness and, and just, you know, having a healthy, constructive environment for child development? I wouldn't personally say I, I've seen a marked difference across the board. That doesn't mean it's not there. I would, like with a single parent, what I would imagine there, I think it goes back to our, our basic needs being met. Like as a single parent, what does that mean for that parent? Do right. they have like additional or co-parenting support? Do they have a support network around them? that's providing that additional support? Do they have um, a steady income or the resources like with any of it, right? In, in terms right. of child development, what kids need the most is that sense of safety and that emotional availability. For any of us to be able to do that, right, right. Um, we have to get our basic needs met. Are we, do we have shelter? Do we have food? Do we have connection to our spirituality? Do we have a social support network? 
So what I imagine the challenges would be more as a single parent is mm-hmm. if what, what supports exist around that parent? Is, are they supported enough in order to then be emotionally present for that child? Right. And one thing I'd like to stress as well is if the answer is no, they haven't been, and they went through a period of time where they weren't emotionally present for that child, and not to minimize what that might look like or, or whatever stressful situation comes up, what matters, I think there's a phrase that's used a lot in um, like infant mental health or mental health with younger children. Mm-hmm. It's more about the repair than the rupture. That's not to minimize any stress or trauma that might have happened for the child, but it's, okay, we were highly stressed at that time. We didn't have the resources we needed. Now that we have those resources in place and that we're getting that support, then how do we repair that relationship with that child? Because from that starting point, I think that's where that healthy emotional development continues to be built. Monique, I don't. did you want to add anything? Yeah, I, mean, I just wanted to echo like what... Denise is sharing, um, and and I can imagine that a single parent household, you know, comes with it, it with a lot of its challenges. Even just thinking of my own, some of my own relatives during this pandemic, and you know, when they went back to work and they had a, you know, they had to take their children to school, but also someone got tested positive at school, and now they're all back at home, and they still need to get to work, and they're not being any COVID relief funds for that, or um, paid time off, like these are really high stressful situations, right? People got to pay their rent, pay their bills. So I can imagine, um, and I have seen and heard different stories in that. So, you know, it's, I will say folks have been in a lot of very high stress situations for quite a long time um, these past few years. Um, and some folks have already had those stresses and this has only really exacerbated that even further. Right. And, what I have seen um, throughout, at least here in LA County, you know, there's different organizations that have been receiving funding and really meeting the needs. Like here in Los Angeles, we have the Tribal Tanic program, and they've been providing COVID relief funds, helping folks with paying their rent and different bills. There's the, the California Native Vote Project. They've been providing, like, different PPE items. We also have an extension nonprofit that has been able to provide um, different health, different healthcare support items to families that may not have the financial means to buy a thermometer or, you know, d- different things that their their family might need for their specific needs of their children and family members. I don't think we're meet, able to meet all the needs, of course, with through all the organizations, but there's been a lot of of resources that have been poured into the community. But, you know, here in L.A. County, it's in, in California, but definitely Los Angeles County, rents are really high, right? right? right. Um, folks are, it, it's, it's a challenge to, to, to just live in this city. So, you know, all those things come in, definitely come into play with uh, when it comes to resources and, and added stress that parents will feel, and then, therefore, it trickles into the younger, younger folks. But... Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot. <laughs> when we talk about indigenous wellness for uh, the larger urban indigenous community in L.A. County, I know there's a, a variety of strategies, if you will, right, from connecting to cultural teachings, right, to health and wellness support. 
for seasonal cultural practices and and health and wellness uh, there to implementing social and cultural activities that help promote wellness right um, mm-hmm. establishment and maintaining collaborations right help to strengthen um, and improve health and wellness right the promotion of healthy foods or traditional foods and obviously mm-hmm. economics um, and being disconnected or living away from home complicates that to just even you know our engagement in traditional and physical activities and so in in kind of um, wrapping up I was wondering maybe both of you could uh, define what is indigenous uh, uh, wellness and and then finally what are the services that indigenous circle circle of wellness provides to the community yeah absolutely so as far as indigenous wellness we really you know we really lean on the medicine well a lot to facilitate healing and wellness so recognizing that the balance between our mental emotional physical and spiritual health is taken care of so we really invite our clients and community members to see like what area of their wellness is being most tended to, what is needing more support in. And a lot of the times when we're even in our individual work that we're doing, it's listening to that and also supporting our clients in finding and, and making the, the needed, recognizing the areas of needed change that they might be um, what resources they might need to also access beyond therapy because therapy is great for some things and there's other things that they need to be connected to and so we help to support them in that facilitation as well. The other thing that we have been doing a lot of is different workshops and and groups as I mentioned and that's to also help with connection both for folks to meet one another, to be in space with one another, to learn from one another the same ways in which we would have been able to do in person. Most of these things have been all done virtually and um, I can share a little bit more on the overall services that we provide, but I'll first just ask Denise if she wanted to add anything Mm -hmm. to that. I was going to say, I feel like you summarized that so beautifully, I almost don't want to touch it. Um, But (laughs) I I, I appreciate you taking the break so you can kind of more summarize the services. Because a lot of my work is focused strictly on the therapy aspect of it or one-on-one, and I, I think it's a lot of what Monique shared is just looking at that overall wellness and really listening to what what does indigenous wellness mean for that client right what it what mm-hmm. is it what does that balance look like for them what are traditions that are part of their life part of their culture part of their individual experience and then how do we build that into the work and and an, another theme that i i feel comes up so much across the board pretty probably with every client that i work with is just this idea of and this has come up so much right now in COVID is is community and how you stay connected to community and where that fits into wellness and, and how you you continue to maintain those supports, right? You know, within community, just what are the ways that we're holding each other and, and providing that mutual support? Monique, I'll come back to you. Is there any contact information or website information that you would like to provide listeners that are interested in the work? that you and Denise and others do at Indigenous Circle of Wellness? Yeah, absolutely. So the best way for folks to connect with us is through social media is a great way. We do have an Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Um, I would say Instagram and Facebook, we share a lot of the partnerships that we have, programming that we're offering, 
currently we have a partnership with the Department of Mental Health and we're providing um, monthly from, it actually started in December, but through June of this year, mental monthly mental wellness gatherings, which are open to all community members in Los Angeles County, um, where we have a, um, a workshop around mental health and then a cultural activity, some type of art hands-on activity that can, that is for the whole family. It, it is virtual. I think we have towards the end of, I think our last event, um, our hope is that it will be in person in June. Um, but all these different things that we provide are are shared also on our social media. So that is a great a great place for folks to connect with us and to mm-hmm. see what what we're offering. We also share a lot of highlights um, as well as other offerings in the community from other organizations. Mm-hmm. So that even if we're not providing it, we can share what's happening in the community. Website. Our website is icowellness.com and we have on the website it shares the services that we provide um, which is individual couple family and group counseling services the website also has a a section where folks can join our email list it's really great for folks to join the email list because there's certain events that book really quickly and our email list always has priority the moment of silence is over And that concludes part two of our two-part interview on Indigenous wellness and healing for the larger urban Indigenous Los Angeles County, California area. We were speaking with Monique Castro and Denise Copeland of the Indigenous Circle of Wellness based out of Commerce, California. That concludes our show for today here on American Indian Airwaves. A special thank you to our guest. Monique Castro and Denise Copeland. A special thank you to our musical guest, Aragon Star, Koopa Aina, and the band Blackfire. American Indian Airwaves is mixed and mastered in the studio of Burnt Swamp Studio in Signal Hill, California. For Marcus Lopez, I've been your host for the hour, Larry Smith. Until next time. Silence is over. Why your freedom manifests on their graves And the blood never comes clean from the guilty minds Nor the hands that hold the chains Silence is over.